Welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. Hello, good night, everybody. That's the philosopher once said. Today is election day, the midterms, the showdown, the day on which Chris Hayes dissolves into the book of Revelation. And so I think it's only fair that I start the show by giving you my predictions. So here goes. I think Republicans are going to end up with 53 Senate seats. That's plus three in the lingo. I think Republicans are going to add 30 seats in the House. I think Kathy Hochul is going to win in New York. Yes, I'm sorry. I think Gretchen Whitmer is going to win in Michigan. And Florida? Well, I think Florida is going to deliver an absolute landslide. DeSantis by 12... Rubio by 10, every statewide office goes Republican, and the GOP wins Miami-Dade County for the first time in two decades. And if I'm wrong, which I often am, there's not much you can do about it. Today on the show, I have Sean Trendy from Real Clear Politics, who's going to talk to me about polling, how it works, what the challenges are, and what he thinks is going to happen today. And after that, I have David Bernstein from George Mason University, who is going to talk to me about his new book, Classified, which takes a look at the strange system of racial classifications used by the federal government. If you haven't yet subscribed to this podcast on one of the many streaming and download services, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, etc., then you can do so immediately. You could just go to podcast.charlescwcook.com and there you will find a list of all of the podcast services on which the Charles C. W. Cook podcast is available. And now there is nothing more for me to do but introduce Sean Trendy. My guest today is Sean Trendy, who's a senior elections analyst at Real Clear Politics and a visiting scholar at AEI, and probably known to anyone who follows polling uh, on the internet at Real Clear Politics, on Twitter, especially around this time of the year. Sean, you, you uh, tend to pop up fairly prominently. So, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. Thanks for having me. So, I want to start with a huge question and that is what is your approach to polling what annoys you the most when you see it what do you try to avoid what rules have served you well and i know you're a a math guru and i'm sure the answers can get complicated i'm not a math guru i'm a math idiot so assume that if possible all right well i'll avoid the uh the proof of the central limit theorem um and there's a lot of things that annoy me my my least favorite thing and why I like working at Real Clear Politics is when someone says, hey, look at this poll that shows the opposite. Uh, and it's like, well, yeah, but there's seven other polls that show something different. You know, that's why we aggregate polls and we average them. And there is math behind it. 
But the bottom line is that with more samples, uh, you get a better estimate. You know, there's a lot of debates over, you know, likely voters and registered voters. And and at the end of the day, I just kind of say, throw throw it in the average and see what sticks. So, So that's my least favorite thing with polling. The least favorite thing being that people pick up on one and they say, right, this must be the right one or this must be the wrong one, depending on what they want to be true. Exactly. It just so happens to match up with their ideological priors. Now, obviously, not all polls are created equal. So you throw polls into the average. Should you do any weighting? Should you choose only certain polls to aggregate? Uh, Is it better to have as much information, even if it's bad? There's debates about all of that. I think we, we don't, you know, we don't wait or anything like that at RCP. It's a simple average. And the irony of it is we usually end up in about the exact same place that Nate Silver does, uh, who does all kinds of waiting. And, and, and Nate and I are, are, you know, friends, friendly at least. And I think we respect each other's different approaches. But my basic view is that if you have high quality polls, you know, pollsters, well, we can talk about high quality polls in a second, but if you have high quality polls, you just, you, you just take the average um, because they should be sampling from the same group. Now, one thing that's a real challenge, and it's not just a challenge for us, that's uh, a challenge for Nate as well, is that the barriers to entry on polling have fallen dramatically in the last 20 years. In the time when you had to do massive, you know, telephone samples, uh, you had to have a lot of money at your disposal, but now with internet polling, anyone can go on MTurk and put up a poll and claim that they're doing real work. So there has to be some due diligence done. Uh, you know, I think it's a good idea, and we both five thirty eight and us have our own ways of doing this. But you know, if you have someone who just pops up, you know, we over the years we've had like Ferris Research and the Big Ten poll and and people who just kind of popped on the screen and then went away. Uh, when you have someone like that, uh, you either just wait and see, let them try a cycle out, see how they do, uh, or you take the approach of weighting them down so much that they really don't impact a well-polled race that much. And what what does that mean, weighting them down? Well, so what what 538 does is the best pollsters with the best best track records their poll comes in and he'll count it at like 100%. If there's a new poll that comes in that doesn't have a track record or their track record is terrible, he'll count them like 20%. Uh so they impact the averages less. It's just another way basically of tossing the data from your average. There's something I've noticed especially on Twitter, but also occasionally in the newspapers, is fear of pollsters. The idea being that pollsters are political and that they're playing games. So you see this on the right, the idea that some pollsters will put out fake or jerry-rigged polls in order to try to suppress enthusiasm or turnout. You see this on the left. Increasingly in the last week, I think, I've seen people on the left saying these are fake Republican polls designed to drive up averages. And so I, I know that that's difficult to achieve on a, on a macro level because of the averaging that you explained. But do those pollsters exist? I mean, is that a real problem you have to account for? I think it exists to some extent, which is part of why you look at a pollster's track record over time. You know, some of the, some of the pollsters that the Democrats have been complaining about, like Trafalgar and Emerson polling inside advantage, actually. 
they've been around, especially Insider Vantage has been around decades and they do a good job, uh, have good track records. Uh, now you do get junk pollsters popping up, but I'm just not convinced that's a problem. There's also a little bit of a kind of the old Carly Simon, you're so vain going on. Like the, 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 the poll averages aren't as powerful as people want to believe. And I think, you know, it's good information for the type of person who is heavily politically involved and wants to know how these races are going. But for the average undecided voter at this point, I mean, they're, they're not going to RCP or 538 to figure out how to cast their ballots. All right. So this morning, you tweeted out this image from 2014, and it looks almost identical, at least at the end, to where the Real Clear Politics polling average is in 2022. So should, should we assume, all right, this looks the same. It's going to be the same election as 2014, big Republican sweep. Well, I think that's a little bit stronger than I would go. Uh, I think it's a good reminder. You know, in that year, a lot of the gold stars, pollsters had Democrats winning the generic ballot. Just in this year, none of them do. But it's a reminder that sampling error is real and margins of error are real. And you should be off. You know, the difference between Republicans winning by two and a half and winning by five and a half is thinking that they're going to get 51% of the vote when they get 52.5. Um, so it seems like a big miss, and it's certainly a consequential miss, but it's also not really that that huge of a miss. Polling errors can go either way. In 2012, the polls said Romney was going to do much better than he ended up doing. In other years, uh, you know, the polls have, show, have shown Donald Trump doing much worse than he ended up doing. So I don't think you can predict which way the poll errors will go. I will admit that it does seem striking to me exactly how similar the poll averages were in 2014 to today. And my mental kind of note or model for this year has been that there will be a sharp break towards Republicans at the end. And that's just because of the political environment rather than any polling tendencies you're seeing. That's correct. I mean, right now we have a president. My my lodestone has always been presidential job approval. I, I think that does an outstanding job of predicting where Senate and House races end up. And we have a president whose job approval is, in the best case, in the mid-40s. That's about where President Obama was in 2010 and 2014 and where President Trump was in 2018. So I, I think I think this is likely to be a bad election for Democrats, unless something very different happens. All right, well, let me ask you about polling misses. So I live in Florida, and the polls in 2020 and 2018 were pretty wrong. I mean, I was so sure in 2018 that DeSantis was going to lose. I'd, I'd have bet quite a lot of money on it, just because, you know, we were getting polls with Andrew Gillum up six or seven, but the average, I think, had Gillum up four and DeSantis won, and then the, the average in 2020 had Biden up half a percent or so, and Trump won by 3.4%. Without getting into too many details, I understand this is complex, but what causes that? What are the challenges that lead to that happening? Because clearly, if you're averaging it all out, it's not one pollster playing games. I mean, this was a, this was a systemic miss. Yes, yes. How does it happen? <laughs> it's funny, because I remember, you know, 
Florida closes relatively early and counts its ballots quickly. And when Florida was coming in like three, four for, I actually went for a long walk around the block because uh, I was like, oh my God, it's happening again. Um, we had coyotes howling in the background out here. And I thought, wow, how appropriate. What, <laughs> happened? <laughs> what, ha- what happens um, is that pollsters no longer get representative samples. It used to be in the 80s that you could do a poll of 2,000 people and 90% would pick up the phone. And you just had to do some light weighting, like maybe your sample was 45% female, so it should be 50 female. Uh, and, and you'd get a pretty good result. And that's just not the universe we live in anymore. People have caller ID, so they don't answer it. There's strict rules about how you can access cell phones. And so pollsters really are not only pollsters anymore, but they're also modelers. Uh, and, and that really does complicate the business, uh, especially for some of these pollsters who are trying to guess the partisan composition anymore. Trying to guess the partisan composition of the electorate is trying to guess the outcome. So, yeah, in places like Florida and Ohio and Wisconsin and Michigan, the polling has been pretty rotten for really four cycles. And we're not sure what causes that. And even more crazy is why the polling has been pretty good in places like Arizona and Colorado. So I wonder if this is going to get worse. Again, I live in Florida and we've had a lot of in-migration. And I saw this chart recently that showed that between... 2005 and 2021, the median distance between a recently purchased home and the homeowner's old home was about 15 miles. But in 2022, that jumped to 50 miles. Hmm. That's a huge jump. Obviously, I think it has a lot to do with COVID. So people are moving. Can polling capture that? I mean, how, how does that affect people keep their phone numbers? Um. I mean, could it save Hochul in New York? Could it lead DeSantis to win in a landslide just because people are moving around? Is it particularly difficult this year because of those changes? Yeah, so a lot of times what pollsters will do is they'll buy the voting lists. And so they'll buy the names of all the registered voters and their addresses and then get their phone numbers. And they'll sample from that list precisely for the reasons that you are suggesting. That's one way to stay current. There's problems with that, but that's very expensive, and so a lot of pollsters don't have the funds to do that, uh, and, and absolutely can be a problem trying to get people who have moved in, moved out. You know, th- this is this is going to be the cycle because, as you know, there was so much you know migration due to COVID. It, yeah, there, there's there are a lot of challenges facing the polling industry right now. Is polling going to get more difficult? We're more atomized. You describe the difference between the 1980s and today. That seems likely to grow. I mean, I think in the long run, even phone numbers might be a thing of the past. Essentially, everything's going to be rolled in to the same internet connection that your phone has. It's it's actually slightly odd that we have this distinction still between the phone and, and the internet, given that you can call people over the internet. How in a world where people move around with ease, don't have a home phone, don't necessarily have strong social bonds. How on earth do you adjust for, for accurate polling? You know, that, that you summed up the challenges nicely. I mean, I, I am hopeful that someone will figure out how to do good, reliable internet polling 
and internet polling has certainly gotten better than it was a decade or two ago. But you know, there's still real question marks uh, surrounding it. So that that's the real answer. Either someone will figure out how to do internet polling well and reliably, uh, and that's what everyone will do, or they won't, and we'll be back to the days of straw polls and feels. <laughs> so. Yeah, so what were those days like? I mean, I, I often read about the elections in 1920. Or, you know, people didn't have polling in quite the same way, and, and sometimes they were absolutely shocked. I mean, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't there some famous incident where the Reader's Digest poll failed to account for the Republican lean of its base, and people assumed that Franklin Roosevelt was going to lose when, in fact, he won pretty well? It's actually a story I love telling my survey research class. But yeah, it was called the Literary Digest Poll. And what they would do is they would send out ballots with their October issue. And it was a massive magazine, uh, widely subscribed. And people would send their ballots back to them and they would tally them up. And they'd get like 4 million, I mean, just a crazy number of responses. And it actually worked in 1916, 20, 24, 28, 32. They did an astonishingly good job. But what happened in 1936 was that by that point in the Depression, a lot of people had canceled their magazine subscriptions and our politics took on a heavy class bias. Class came to the forefront with the New Deal. And so the fact that Literary Digest was anyone who had a magazine subscription at that point was relatively well off meant that they were sampling overwhelmingly from Landon voters. So yeah, that actually put them out of business. Uh, But thankfully, that was the first election that George Gallup did his polling, and he got that right. So yeah, you, you you would rely a lot more on conversations on the ground, what people were reporting. You know, I don't think it's not going to be the most accurate, and it does lead to genuine surprises. But, you know, I think for an astute analyst, there are a researcher, there are opportunities there as well. So one of the one of the running jokes you see, and I suppose this is related, is it'll all come down to turnout, which is <laughs> which is obviously true, sort of a truism. But the implication of that that joke, the implication of turnout, have changed over time. Back when I was first covering this stuff, it was generally assumed that a high turnout election helped the Democrats. Is that still true? No. Why not? Because the Republican coalition, the the old thought was that because the Republicans are kind of the coalition of the upper middle class in the suburbs, you know, their voters are going to turn out. But as turnout, overall turnout increases, um, you're starting to pull more from working class voters and minority voters. That's how you get turnout up. But the party coalitions have changed over the years. Republicans increasingly draw from working class whites and even Hispanics uh, and African-Americans. So I I don't think that rule works anymore. I mean, we had turnout absolutely off the charts in 2020, even in the middle of a pandemic. And Donald Trump came 20,000 votes spread across three states from winning re-election. So I, I just don't think, I don't think that rule holds. Even in 2004, Bush had probably the Trumpiest electoral coalition of any Republican recently. And, and the, the famous Bob Shrum asking John Kerry if he could be the first to call uh, Kerry Mr. President, they hit, the Democrats hit their turnout targets. They hit levels that they didn't think the Republicans could outdo. And then the Republicans just blew the roof off. 
So I, I think that conventional wisdom needs to be put out to pasture. All right. So without tying you down to anything in particular, I want to I do some, not predictions, but some uh, outer bounds. So where do you think the waterline is for Republicans? I mean, if you, if, what, what is the point beyond which you would say, no, that is impossible? How many Senate seats? How many House seats? So this is like possible, not my 95%. Sure. So I think 55 Senate seats is possible and it won't fall below 49 and for the house uh, 50 i could count to can't really see it falling below say 15 or so okay do you have any view on governor's races or are they too individualized i i, I have views on them individually but i haven't aggregated them uh but you know look i, I can see a universe where republicans surprise in some states like Oregon and New York. They have two losses baked in in Maryland and Massachusetts. But I could see them perhaps picking up, you know, some of these outside races and turning in a maybe like a three or four seat gain. But that again, that's like best case scenario. All right. Well my final question, and I think this one's going to be particularly practically useful. This will be Released on Tuesday, November 8th, Election Day, people who are desperately refreshing websites and refreshing <laughs> Twitter. Why are you so circumspect when discussing early vote totals and exit polls? The early vote totals are problematic because they do tell us a lot about the number of people who have voted early. And if you know the right statistical techniques and have the right data, you can get some information about how those people who voted early have voted. The problem is you don't know anything about who's voting on election day. And it's especially problematic when Democrats have, the issues become polarized along partisan lines. Democrats have been singing the praises of early voting and mail voting. The former Republican president has been trashing it. So it may well be that election day turnout is going to become a Republican phenomenon. We just don't know. As far as early exits, you know, the exit polls come in early. And first off, you don't know who's voting in the afternoon or evening. You know, people get off shift work or they get off their nine to five job and they vote in the in the evening. The other problem is that that data often isn't properly weighted yet. They, they may have way too many women or may too, way too many upper class voters. You know, they'll wait to even it all out in the end. But you know, the early exits uh, predicted George W. Bush was going to win California, and they predicted that John Kerry was going to be president. So handle with care. All right. Well, Sean, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. I know you have a million things to do, so good luck doing them, and I uh, hope to speak to you soon. Thank you so much. My next guest today is David Bernstein, who holds the University Professor Chair at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So you've written a book called Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. And the subtitle to the book is a call for the separation of race and state, backed by a deep dive into the surreal world of racial classification in America. I want to use these as the basis of my questions. I do this at 30,000 feet for people who don't know as much as you do about this topic. And I want to start really basic here and ask, what is 
racial classification in America? What does that mean in practice? Where is it used? Who uses it? What is its purpose? And how does America differ from other countries in this area, if indeed it does? The United States, contrary to what most of us think, has official racial classifications. Not that you get classified when you're born or the government keeps a record, but we have official definitions of which racial categories we have and what they encompass. These were promulgated by the government in the mid-1970s, basically for the relatively innocuous purpose that they were getting lots of data regarding civil rights enforcement and education and so forth about different groups, but they didn't have uniform classification. So they were getting data that didn't match. So for example, what we now call Hispanics, there are like eight or nine different categories that different agencies refer to them as. Some had Hispanos, some had Latinos, some had Hispanics, some had Spanish surnames, some had Spanish-speaking household, and so on. And all of these would have slightly different definitions, and therefore the data they were getting was about different groups of people, and they couldn't compare them. They're apples and oranges. So they promulgated these definitions uh, and the categories themselves, and they said these are really only for data collection purposes. They're not meant to be anthropological or sociological or scientific, and they're not meant to be used for eligibility for any government program, in other words, not for affirmative action. But as soon as these classifications basically came into being, uh, they did start to be used for all sorts of purposes. The original purpose, which was civil rights enforcement, uh, they continued to be used for, and for that purpose they were not exactly Uh, precise, but they were probably good enough for government work, as they say. But they wound up infiltrating themselves into affirmative action, into medical research. So if you do, if you participate in a medical study now, they will ask you which of these categories you belong to, even though classifications like Hispanic or Asian, which encompasses everyone from Pakistanis to Filipinos, are completely scientifically meritless and don't really give us any useful information. Uh, They have affected the way people perceive themselves. So most people of Spanish-speaking origin in the United States now at least accept the classification of Hispanic as a secondary identity. But 50 years ago, no one thought of themselves as Hispanic. The government classification didn't exist yet. And Hispanic really referred to like literature, like Cervantes or other Spanish literature would be called Hispanic. Uh, Very few people thought of themselves as Asian Americans or AAPI, but now there are all sorts of organizations and interest groups based on that. And speaking of interest groups, interest groups have rallied around these classifications, trying to uh, make them as expansive as they can for their own groups and exclude people that they don't want in if that would diminish the value. So, for example, Native American groups have been extremely uh, jealous of not allowing Native Hawaiians or Latinos who are like 100% of uh, indigenous origin from South or Central America join the Native American classification because they want to preserve the resources they get from the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So basically, the long and the short of it is that we're stuck with uh, several racial classifications, white, African-American slash black, Hispanic slash Latino, Native American, Asian American, uh, and Pacific Islander, Native Hawaiian, plus the plus Hispanic, which is considered an ethnic, not a racial classification. These classifications were sort of invented haphazardly in the 70s, and they've barely 
changed since, even though the United States has become a much, much, much more ethnically mixed and diverse country since then. Now, you call this an untold story. It's not just a story. It's an untold story. What's untold about it? I don't think one in a thousand Americans have ever heard of the law or the rule that made up these classifications called Statistical Directive Number 15. I had never heard of it, and I'm a law professor who's been writing about race for 30-plus uh, years. Uh, and indeed, when I looked up Directive 15 in the law review literature, almost no one ever cites it. It's just people are just unaware that it exists and how much influence it's had on American life. And of course, uh, Directive 15 didn't just come out of the ether. There were previous attempts to classify people for various reasons uh, to enforce civil rights laws going back to the Eisenhower administration. There were, of course, older racial classifications that were used to police interracial marriage and immigration. We had an Asian Immigration Act that prohibited immigration by Asians. And the question was, well, who's Asian? Are Arabs Asian or Indians Asian? And the United States back in the 1920s, the Supreme Court drew the line at the western border of Pakistan. And ironically, that's the same line that our current laws draw. So we actually wind up with um, recapitulating a completely racist category from 100 years ago. And I don't think people are aware of this. They're also not aware, I think, that the classifications do have official definitions. Um, for the most part, we do rely on people to self-identify, and we often don't give them any clue as to how they're supposed to figure out which group they're in. But in fact, I discovered and, and talk about cases that no one else has ever talked about. So there's the untold story in which someone applied to be a minority business contractor or to be a participant in an affirmative action employment program and claimed to be Hispanic or Asian or black. And someone challenged them, said, hey, you don't look like you're a member of this group. Your last name doesn't sound like a member of this group. Prove to us you are. And we actually have the equivalent of race trials in the United States, either in trial court or in Ministry of Agencies, which I would think most Americans thought went out with like the 1930s or so. So are there any upsides to this? I mean, if you were in charge, would you limit or alter this or would you abolish it? I, th I think I'm right in saying, correct me if I'm wrong, but France doesn't collect data like this at all. Right. So there are upsides and downsides. So France is sort of the extreme example where they will not collect uh, official census data or whatnot based on uh, different ethnicities. And the idea is they want to do this to enhance social solidarity, not to balkanize the population, to encourage uh, French common identity. And that is an upside, right? We all, I think, I shouldn't say all, most of us would like a situation in the near future where we could all just think of ourselves uh, in the United States as fellow Americans, regardless of our ethnic or racial backgrounds, and those would be secondary, at least you know, in the public sense. I mean, anyone could privately consider what they want. The downside is that if you don't collect data at all, you might be missing important social um, phenomenon that you don't want to be missing. So, for example, when anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic violence in France rose among, in particular, the North African population, because France keeps statistics neither about Jews nor about North African Muslims, uh, and their ideology is we're all just Frenchmen, for a long time, the French government was very unresponsive to this phenomenon, saying, well, it's just Frenchmen attacking other Frenchmen, it's just general criminal activity, which it really wasn't. So that's a downside. The second downside, which is particularly uh, important for the United States, 
is that um, we have these civil rights laws. Now, to some extent, civil rights laws don't need to have statistics because they should be based on individualized discrimination rather than generalized statistics. But even if you are, are of that opinion, there are some laws that will be awfully difficult to enforce without collecting data uh, in some way. For example, the Voting Rights Act. So if we're thinking, okay, uh, nowadays it's 2022, no one's going to explicitly hold up a sign in front of the local polling place, no Hispanic may vote or black people can't vote or whatever, but there may be sort of surreptitious ways of trying to suppress the vote of certain minority groups. Well, how are you going to know that there's some county in rural Texas that's suppressing the Hispanic vote if you have no idea what percentage of Hispanics are voting? So that's a problem. Uh, what I argue in the book, I talk about the separation of, of race and state, like you mentioned. So basically, that is a strong presumption against classifying at all. You really need to have a really strong governmental interest in classifying if the government's going to do it. And then if you do classify, you shouldn't be using crude categories invented in the 70s, but you should be trying to figure out what you're really getting at. So, for example, the FBI is one government agency that does not use, or at least doesn't solely rely on these statistics when it's gathering hate crime statistics. Because if you only looked at Directive 15 categories, you'd be missing anti-Semitic violence, uh, you'd be missing anti-Catholic stuff. You'd be missing anti-Muslim, anti-Arab, because Arabs are considered white. So the FBI has a whole list of classifications they use because the Directive 15 classifications don't encompass the entire range of the kind of hate crimes people might face. If you're a sociologist or anthropologist or economist doing research, let's say you're doing research on how people are doing of Spanish-speaking origin in Florida. You don't want to use the Hispanic classification because then you are just combining Cuban Americans in South Florida who've been there since Castro uh, came into power with more recent Cuban immigrants, with uh, recent immigrants from Venezuela and other South American countries fe fleeing socialism, some of whom are quite wealthy, others of whom are here illegally. Uh, you'd be also combining hundreds of thousands of Puerto Ricans who fled uh, Puerto Rico after the recent hurricane and are trying to make their way to Florida. There's a whole area of Central Florida as a very large Mexican farm labor population. These are all ethnographic sociologically, anthropologically, very different populations, and simply uh, averaging them together and coming up with the result is like is like anti-information, like anti-matter. It's like giving you less information than when you started. So it seems to me there's a tension here. On the one hand, as you say, if we're going to have, say, the Voting Rights Act, then we're going to have to have some means by which to determine what group people belong to and whether or not that group is being discriminated against. But on the other hand, we have discrimination in current American life that majorities, and maybe soon the Supreme Court, disdain. Affirmative action is unpopular. People don't like the idea of discriminating on the basis of race, even if it is, in the opinion of its apologists, nice discrimination or positive discrimination or what you will. Is there any way of collecting this sort of information on the scale that the American government does without it then being used for more pernicious forms of discrimination in the way that it has been? There are some ways. I mean, it really depends on the circumstances. But for example, the educational context, on the one hand, universities are obligated to collect this data to uh, show their their 
that they're adhering to civil rights laws. I'm not sure to what extent that's even really needed nowadays. It's hard to imagine any significant educational institution intentionally discriminating against uh, underrepresented minorities when they're doing the exact, you know, the opposite, discriminating in their favor. But as long as we have that, that data will be collected. But one could just have a law or a Supreme Court opinion saying, look, you've been using race in very crude ways that we don't think is appropriate or more importantly is legal. Therefore, you could still collect this data and report it to the Department of Education Office of Civil Rights, but your admissions offices aren't allowed to see it. So let me ask you about that, because I assume you hope the court's going to reverse Grutter in the coming term. Yes, I, 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 I hope and expect that it will, actually. I share that hope. I think affirmative action is uh, grotesque. I also think it violates the 1964 Civil Rights Act and possibly the 14th Amendment, which we can come on to in a little bit. But one question I have on this, can you stop it? I listened to these uh, oral arguments and one of the cases that was made either by some of the justices and devil's advocate or by the lawyer for the University of North Carolina in that case, was, look, we're not deciding solely on the basis of race. We're not just looking at the box that students tick that says what race they are. We are factoring in uh, across a whole array of data. And as such, even if you take that box away, a student could quite easily say, well, since I moved here from Pakistan or as a black man or growing up in the border towns of Texas and only speaking Spanish. And you would know, and you would be able to take into account uh, that part of their personality and make a decision based on it. And there's not much a, a court decision could do to stop that, is there? Yeah, in fact, I think that um, it will be very hard. I mean, because people, you know, I don't really, I, my daughter's a high school senior, so I'm going through this process right now, and I don't really understand what universities think they're getting from a polished essay that you work for months on, supposedly revealing something about yourself or your character or how good a writer you are. It really is ultimately how, it is a little bit about how good a writer you are, but how much, how much did your parents pay for people to help you with it, how much time did you spend on it, how smart are your own parents or educated are they to help you with it, you're not really getting anything. So I am a little dubious about why these life stories make any difference anyway, but you're right, once you allow people to talk about their life story, uh, there's no way of prohibiting them from talking about the fact that they have a certain ethnicity or racial or any other kind of background. I do think that if we did get rid of Grutter, the underlying true motivation, I mean, I, you know, people do believe in diversity. It's become, even though it's sort of made up by Justice Powell in the Bakke case in 1978, it's got its adherence in the university world. But the thing with diversity is it doesn't really make any sense. Why do you care if you have, if you already have 500 Mexican American students, uh, the way things work now is the 501st makes you more diverse. But if you got the first person from Armenia, that would not make you more diverse, which doesn't make any sense. So the diversity thing is a sham. So the question is, what's really underlying this ultimately? And my sense, being in academia and writing about this and so forth, is that ultimately everyone wants to defend this 
because they really feel that it's 2022 African Americans, uh, especially those born in the, you know, who have been in the United States family wise for many generations are not doing that well educationally. And we can't have a situation where Harvard University is, say, only 2% African American or where Yale Law School only has, you know, three African American students out of 180 because we're not looking at race at all. So I think there's an answer to this. Uh, I think, you know, you could say, let's just ban this entirely. But I think what you are going to see is massive resistance to coin a phrase. So there is a way of dealing with this, which I suggest in my book. I'm not sure this is the best social policy, but it would be a way of squaring the circle, which is that you could tell universities, for example, you're allowed to consider whether someone is a descendant of American slaves. Why are you allowed to do that? Because that is not as such a racial classification. We're not saying as we do today that if your father was the ambassador from Nigeria to the United States, he went to high school here and decided to stay and become a citizen, and this somehow adds to diversity and therefore you get a preference. You would not be getting a preference if you're Barack Obama. So it's, it is very much correlated with race, but over 20% of the African-American population are first or second generation immigrants. So we exclude a lot of people. And those people are actually getting more of the benefit proportionally, way more than the people who was originally in, uh, intended to help those who've had generational experiences with poverty and uh, slavery and Jim Crow and so forth. So I think that would actually be, oh, I don't think my impression is that no one really, even though they give preferences to Hispanics, that's not the driving force. So I would suggest potentially a compromise along those lines, that you could use the non-racial classification of descent from American slavery to a certain extent, as long as you're not using it entirely as a proxy for race, and as long as you uh, could equally consider, well, we also have a Bosnian refugee or a Syrian refugee. They also have interesting uh, oppression stories that, that they could bring here, and they also might need a leg up because of this. Uh, so I think that would be a way of both satisfying the most important underlying concern of diversity mongers, uh, while also not bringing us into sort of racial caste systems. I should point out, by the way, also, we love to talk about universities. Uh, that's always in the news. But we also have preferences for government contracting. And the government contracting sphere, unlike in universities, you get the exact same preference, regardless of which racial minority group or ethnic minority group officially you belong to. So Hispanics, Asians, Blacks, Native Americans get the same preference. You could be a descendant of American slaves who grew up in uh, poverty in the inner city. You get no more or less preference than an Indian engineer from Bangalore who moved here six years ago and got citizenship, or than someone with a Mexican-American great-grandfather who basically lived their life as a white person but checks the Hispanic box, or so forth. So even if you're in favor of affirmative action, you really need to think about whether the classifications that we have are working out, because I doubt out from what I've seen, and it's very hard to get data on this, that even 20% of minority business enterprises are going to African Americans, even though they were the group that was primarily supposed to be targeted by them. Do you think that taking race into consideration is a violation of the Constitution, as Clarence Thomas does? So I've been careful lately to try to differentiate between a phrase lawyers like to use, which is race consciousness and racial classifications. I think racial classifications, in other words, the government saying you belong to this race and you're going to get some sort of benefit or 
harm based on that classification should almost always be unconstitutional. It's hard for me to think of a circumstance where that by itself would be a legitimate rationale for the government making policy. But taking race into account in a broader sense may often not be unconstitutional. So imagine, for example, that you are a school board of a newly incorporated town and you're building your first two high schools and you have different choices of where to site the high schools. So basically, you have plan A and plan B. And in plan B, each high, you know, basically, let's say, you're, and let's also assume that your population is half black and half white. Plan A is the slightly better plan for cost and convenience and so forth, but it result in each school being 95% of one race and 5% of the other. Plan B would be slightly more expensive, but it would also result in classes that were 55-45 in one high school and 55-45 the other way in the other high school, so basically almost fully integrated. I don't think that the government can rightfully be prohibited in taking into account that in, that integration is a social value that is permissible to take into account under the Constitution when you're not actually classifying anyone individually. Do you think it's an equal protection violation to take the course you suggested, which is to discern whether or not someone is a descendant of slaves and treat them differently within the educational system? I I would say no if I were a judge. However, and I would say no based on a, a case that may no longer even be good precedent. There's a case from the early 70s in which the question was, can the Bureau of Indian Affairs give a preference to Native Americans? And the court said they could because it's not really a racial preference because you had to be a tribal member. And tribal membership is a political category rather than a racial one, although, of course, it's 100% correlated with being a Native American. I mean, a, not all Native Americans are tribal members, but all tribal members, almost all tribal members are Native Americans, almost 100% correlated. So if that's good law, it seems to me that you could also have sort of a historical uh, basis for it. And maybe the classification needs to be even narrower, like you were uh, you're a descendant of American slaves and you live and you come from a zip code that you know has a poverty rate over 50% or something like that. I would say that that would not be a racial classification per se when come under uh, the opinion I mentioned earlier. I don't know whether six, whether uh, we, you would get five justices of the Supreme Court uh, to agree with me on that. Right, my final question is, are you an optimist or a pessimist on this? You describe racial classifications in America as a surreal world. I think that's uh, pejorative. Is this an area you expect to improve as small L liberals once believed that it would with the passage of time? Or do you think we're headed for some sort of balkanized society where our immutable characteristics are all that is important about us? I think that there's reason for optimism for a few reasons. One reason is because when I first started writing my book, Classified, I thought, oh, people on the left are just going to hate this because even though the book really isn't about affirmative action as such, they will just see it as an attack on affirmative action because they don't think about the classifications, they don't care. In the few short years since I started writing the book until it came out, there's thought to be a lot of talk on the left about how these classifications are problematic. How, and they start talking about BIPOC instead of people of color because, like, why are we talking about recent Hispanic or Asian immigrants in the same category as African Americans or Native Americans who've been here for hundreds of years and whose ancestors suffered all this deprivation? They've started talking about 
uh, anti-blackness to differentiate it from just general racism because that's been such a particularly pernicious uh, part of American history. Uh, there's been increasingly, uh, maybe because they're voting increasingly Republican, there's been increasing notice on the left that, wait a second, a lot of people we call Hispanic uh, are really actually white, and they just happen to have Spanish-speaking ancestry as opposed to Italian or Greek or Armenian or other groups that are, are a bit darker than average but are still Caucasian. Uh, so they, and like I I said um, we've got we've gotten to the point where so many people from different groups can qualify for certain kinds of programs that's becoming incoherent and in a sense if you want to save affirmative action of some sort you have to grapple with the fact that soon 80 or 90 percent of americans will be able to claim an ancestor in one of the categories and thus uh, be a member of minority group but the even bigger reason i have some optimism is that on the ground these classifications are not having the effect that they might of truly balkanizing us in practice. There's a danger that they will increasingly, the more benefits come from claiming a classification, the more we can imagine a Hobbesian war of all against all. But in fact, Americans have never been more tolerant of different groups. They're intermarrying more than ever. The uh, intermarriage rates for uh, Hispanics and Asians born in the United States is quite high. It's even getting pretty significant for African-Americans. It's gone up in like 25 years from 5% to 22%. And moreover, these classifications that the government's imposed on us, people often ignore them. Most Asian-Americans, quote-unquote, don't consider themselves Asian-Americans. Most people we call Hispanics or Latinos, they not only don't like Latinx, they don't really like Latino or Hispanic that much either, unless they're members of activist groups. The vast majority, if you ask them in sociological research or public opinion surveys, prefer to be called either by their nationality of origin, like Mexican-American or Guatemalan-American or Cuban-American or just American. They say, yeah, you can call me Hispanic too, but that's not really how I primarily think of myself. So we are sort of um, at an impasse at, right at this point where the classifications are getting more and more absurd, but more and more dangerous in some ways, and more and more risking uh, risking balkanization, uh, given also the rise of certain uh, bad tendencies on both the right and left uh, regarding identity politics, but on the gra on the grassroots, it still hasn't quite affected the progress we've been making towards a common identity as Americans. All right. Well, on that optimistic and happy note, I will thank you very much, David Bernstein. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And that is all we have time for on this election day. Thank you to my guests, Sean Trendy and David Bernstein. Thank you to you for listening. And I'll leave you with a sneak preview of Chris Hayes' MSNBC monologue due to be delivered this evening on his nationally televised politics show. And I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another.